world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard. Fear no evil. Get yours today only at LipstickBodyguard.com. This week on Parents Are Hard to Raise, Diane discusses Parkinson's disease with two renowned experts. From the University of California, Irvine, Dr. Neil Hermanovich and Sarah Jones, Director of the Parkinson's and Movement Disorder Alliance here in the US. Join 180 million monthly subscribers who can now listen to Parents Are Hard to Raise on Spotify. Welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise, helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. For over three seasons now, I've made it a point to ask you, our Parents Are Hard to Raise worldwide family, for input on what topics you would like to hear covered on the show. And nearing the very top of the list for some time has been Parkinson's disease, which is why I'm so pleased to have with us this week two of the most preeminent experts on the subject, Dr. Neil Hermanowiz and Sarah Jones. Dr. Hermanowiz, they're laughing at me already because I got your name pronounced right. You got it right. <laughs> I did. You win the bet. <laughs> I do. Dr. Hermanowiz is a professor of neurology, director of the Movement Disorders Program, and vice chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of California, Irvine. He earned his medical degree at Temple University School of Medicine and has spent his time split between patient care, clinical research, and education, which is likely why he has been recognized as one of the best doctors in America by U.S. News. Sarah Jones is the chief executive officer of the Parkinson's and Movement Disorder Alliance, based here in the U.S. Under Sarah's direction, the Alliance just published the findings of an extensive caregiver survey on the negative impact of non-mobility-related symptoms on the lives of family caregivers, the findings of which I'm hoping to learn more about. Neil and Sarah, welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you. So when people hear Parkinson's disease, most are familiar with the physical symptoms, the tremors, the rigidity, the moving slow. But what many people may not be aware of are the many non-movement symptoms. Could you describe what some of those are? Sure. I'll go first, Sarah, and you can Great. jump in if you like um, at any time. So the, the, the non-motor or non-mobility symptoms are unfortunately pretty common and may in fact be some of the earliest symptoms that people experience, and that's been documented, studied, and has given us a window on, on looking at how Parkinson's disease may begin in some people huh. anyhow, and how it can evolve over time. So some of the earliest non-motor symptoms can include sleep disturbance, something called REM sleep behavior disorder, where people act out their dreams 
Normally, when we're asleep and dreaming, our, our brains are disconnected from most of our muscles. But in people with Parkinson's disease or early Parkinson's, uh, that disconnect switch may not work. And people will be swinging their arms or screaming in their sleep, for example. Wow. Other, another, another, another non-motor uh, symptom could be uh, gastrointestinal dysfunction. People may have constipation or less frequent bowel movements or something called gastroparesis. Another one which people sometimes describe or when asked uh, is impaired sense of smell. Wow. Uh, loss or impaired sense of smell, which can precede the appearance of the motor things that you described by a decade or more. It's a long list of other things that my patients describe to me that are well known to current people with Parkinson's disease, including uh, cognitive uh, changes, memory uh, difficulties sometimes, occasionally uh, hallucinations, uh, for example, or delusional thoughts. Uh, bladder problems, bowel problems can also occur. Even skin problems, people often don't recognize that that could be a Right. Common manifestation of uh, Parkinson's disease as well. Uh, skin rashes and even a nasty skin cancer called malignant melanoma. So if, you know, if you're uh, a, a child of an, uh, an aging parent, you know, and you're maybe your mom or dad, I guess, wake up, you know, swinging their arms or, you know, um, having these cognitive changes, uh, you wouldn't imagine Parkinson's. No, that's correct. <laughs> that doesn't uh, occur to people, and I think it, it may be bewildering, and people think it may be uh, just a, a normal process. Yeah. And in fact, it was studied some years ago, by, initially by a group in Minneapolis, uh, Carlos Schenk and his colleagues. They followed people who had this entity called REM sleep behavior disorder and followed men primarily. Uh, and over time, an increasing percentage of these people who had this sleep behavior showed signs of Parkinsonism. So I'm not saying that everybody who has this will get Parkinson's disease, but it has gotten attention as a possible early indicator that something is brewing. This, uh, these symptoms, what impact would they have on, you know, the, the poor person and their caregiver? Uh, it, well, it's a, that's a good point because because there have been instances. Well, people they awaken their their bed partner, for example, by their by their motions or by their vocalizing. I've had patients or their spouses of patients tell me, you know, I'm afraid the neighbors are going to call the police uh, because people are screaming right. yeah. in their dreams. Uh, and and uh, there have been examples of. Bed partners being injured by the person they're sleeping oh beside them. You know, somebody's swinging a fist and, and unintentionally uh, punching somebody in the nose, uh, oh my for example. So yeah. that, that has been known to occur. One of my patients some years ago took a, a solo, he, he took a flight uh, from California to New York City to for family events, and he went by himself, which was probably not a great idea. Yeah. Oh, and on that yeah. flight, he fell asleep and, oh, no. and yeah. was awakened <clears throat> to find a group of people standing around him at his seat because apparently he had been screaming in his sleep while he was on the plane. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah, and if they don't have a if they don't have a movement disorder specialist, a, a neurologist who has advanced training right. in Parkinson's disease or movement disorders, this may not even come up in a conversation with a physician. And it's one of those places that you know people are embarrassed to ask questions; they don't yeah. understand what's happening. And so, you know, you know, to Dr. Hermanowitz's point, this is a high risk place for care partners and spouses, but not necessarily something that comes to the surface um, until, you know, pretty far into the disease, which is what's great to have the awareness out there so people can bring it up to their physicians. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and moreover, it's treatable. There are, are things yeah. that can be done to to reduce the likelihood. I'm not saying it would be completely eliminated. Right. But are things that are used, sometimes even something as simple as melatonin. There's a ah. prescription medication called clonazepam or clonazepam, which is often pretty effective in reducing the, the sleep-emerging behaviors. So someone come, someone having, you know, these symptoms, um, I, I would imagine they probably would just go to their regular physician. They wouldn't, you know... Uh, well, that's another good point. <laughs> right. uh, mm-hmm. the first, I, I, it's hard to find these people who are having this, this isolated, what's called REM sleep behavior disorder. Uh, they don't usually find their way to me. Every once in a great while they do, and I have such a person in my practice right now uh, who was referred to me by a sleep specialist, which has occurred in the, in the past also, huh. recognizing, oh, they've got REM sleep behavior disorder. Perhaps they've had a formal sleep study, and it was identified and confirmed that they've got REM sleep behavior disorder. So some physicians, and and this patient was actually referred by, the, I believe, the director of our sleep uh, program here at the university, because she knows of that connection between REM sleep behavior disorder and Parkinson's disease. Now, that that person who who was referred to me does not have any motor manifestations of Parkinson's disease, but none of that. That, that patient is, is well-informed you know, by reading on the Internet. There's a lot of information that one can get access to. So the concern is present, although uh, there, the, the diagnosis of Parkinson's at this time is really largely dependent upon the motor findings, which this person does not have. Right. Another interesting point, though, is that when this patient came to see me, I did a formal test for his sense of smell, uh, as I mentioned, that also can be impaired in early non-motor manifestations of Parkinson's disease. And the formal test, which is called the University of Pennsylvania Smell Identification Test, or UPSA, uh, he did not perform well, actually. I think, as I recall, he was below the 10th percentile Hmm. for somebody of his, a man of his age. So there are a couple of things now that are raising some concern, but still not a confirmation of Parkinson's disease. And, you know, thinking about raising your, you know, parents are hard to raise, thinking about the parents. I mean, these are the kind of things that I think for adult children to know, to be able to ask those questions, if you just see something that's maybe a little odd, like right to, to even recognize that, what what is it, Dr. Hermano, it's about 25% of people don't have any tremor. Wow. Um, that's true. It, yeah, so it's it's... Significant, but if you ask the questions, you know, you might surface the REM sleep disorder or hallucinations or delusions, some of the other things that people just don't talk about. But boy, they are the they are physically risky and they're also just exhausting for people living with this. Sure. How aware are physicians about 
about those connections. Well, yeah, about these connections. Yeah. I, I think it's getting better, actually. Okay. Uh, I think in patients also, they will, uh, they will sometimes bring these things up uh, because if there's been some question about what's you know, their, their walking has changed and maybe they do have a tremor, perhaps not, that they're having symptoms of maybe some subtle slowness, then people are on the internet and exploring these things and maybe going to Sarah's site and, and finding out information that so more, more and more, uh, com certainly compared to early in my career, right. which was when I started prior to the existence of the internet and access to all this information, but more and more people, patients themselves are becoming aware. And I think with that, physicians, including primary care physicians as well. Yep, and and um, and I think to that point too, people are beginning to understand that there's treatments for it, right? I mean, there's the treatments are relatively new in the last few years um, for some of these some of these complications for Parkinson's and some of the challenging symptoms. And it's nice to be able to have people recognize that there is some hope out there that yeah. we can address some, even if there's not a cure for the disease. There are some ways to potentially mitigate some of these symptoms. Um, I think Sarah makes a good point because sometimes and we know that in the past people would, uh, it's been published, it's been studied that people would be visiting a variety of doctors for on average uh, two years with symptoms that they couldn't, that were troubling to them, but they didn't quite understand what they were coming from. Right. But as, as the knowledge about early manifestations of Parkinson's and these non-motor things, increasingly identified. I think people are arriving at an answer, I hope, and I think, I suspect, they're arriving at an answer to what's going on when it is, in fact, Parkinson's disease earlier than they used to, which is mm -hmm. a good thing. I mean, it's not good, it's not happy news to hear that one has Parkinson's right. disease, but I thought, I'm thinking of a patient who I still see, and, and she was relieved to learn that she had Parkinson's disease because she thought she had something called ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, oh, which wow. is yeah. much worse. So just knowing what it is that one is dealing with can at least bring some mm -hmm. peace of mind, although, again, it's not a happy diagnosis to hear. Yeah. Is the patient aware um, if they're having, you know, delusions or hallucinations? Sometimes they are. Um, I, I've, I've been hearing these kinds of symptoms pretty much throughout my career. They've been getting increasing attention in more, more recent years. Fair mention, there are, there's a more specific medication developed uh, for exactly for those symptoms. Um, yeah, they, they, when they first occur, people may realize, so that, uh, that cat that I see in the corner is not actually there, or the, right. the child that I think is sitting on the sofa, that, that doesn't really make sense. So there can be insight uh, retained, and, 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 and for some time, that people realize, well, that, that's not really true, or that people have a sense that there might be somebody standing beside them, and they look, and there's, there's nobody there. So when people are having delusions, or I, I should say hallucinations, hallucinations, are, and they're usually visual, although they may be auditory or other uh, senses involved as well. And typically, at the onset, they're, they're visual. People do know, at least for a while, that this is not correct. Right? You know, but as time goes by, that, that insight can oftentimes not, not be present. And people start thinking, well, there actually is a stranger in my bathroom at night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they don't always tell their care partner or their loved or the, ones. Either. Right. I was going to say they probably don't. We're going to continue talking with Dr. Neil Hermanowitz 
and Sarah Jones. But first, if you're a woman or there's a woman in your life, there's something you absolutely need to know. I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only five feet tall and 106 pounds, she was easily able to drop her six foot four, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day. She was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000-pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. Were you ever young? You're listening to Parents Are Hard To Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. Listen to this and other episodes on demand using the iHeartRadio app. iPhone users can listen on Apple Podcasts and Android users on Google Podcasts. Want a great new way to listen to the show? Just say, Alexa, play Parents Are Hard To Raise podcast. Getting the latest episode of Parents Are Hard to Raise. Here it is from iHeartRadio. It's as simple as that. You're right, Dolly. There are so many really cool new ways to listen to our show. It's hard to keep track. You can join the 180 million listeners on Spotify. You can listen in your car, at the gym, or pretty much anywhere on your smartphone with Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can get us on Apple TV, DirecTV, Roku, and like Dolly said, you can even ask Alexa to play the show for you. It's great because you don't have to be tied to a radio anymore. You can listen when you want, where you want, for as long as you want. And if you're listening to the show in one of these new ways, please do me a big favor. Share this new technology. Help someone else learn about the show and show them a new way to listen. So, uh, Sarah, where can uh, our listeners learn more about this study and the results? 
You know, we have, a, if you visit our website, www.pmdalliance.org, we have a page that has all the information about this um, study and a link to um, the actual research findings, as well as some additional information that people might want to read about to learn more about the different things we've been talking about, whether it's hallucinations or delusions right. or sleep disorders. Um, and then we also have a link to our YouTube uh, channel, which has extensive um, video. I, I think we have about 70 vid- educational videos oh, wow. on there mm-hmm, with different um, physicians like Dr. Hermanowitz. And um, yep, so any of those. And then also um, specifically for adult children, we have a private uh, Facebook group just for adult children of people with Parkinson's and other movement disorders um, so that they can have conversations about the different challenges they're having, navigating, supporting, you know, the parent who's the care partner as well as the person with the disease. Right. Okay. Uh, That's wonderful Um, because I I, I can't even imagine, you know, uh, day-to-day life and the quality of life for uh, the people with, with the disorder and their caregivers. Yeah, we like to say, you know, it's really, we, we say it's an equal opportunity disease that everyone in the family has Parkinson's. Nobody really gets to escape it. Everybody just has a different um, manifestation of it. So if you're the, the uh, care partner, you're living with it too. It's just a little bit different. And um, as an adult child, I think you're, you're navigating that too. My, my father-in-law had Parkinson's and Boy, we kept trying to help and support navigating, um, you know, that journey and understanding what was going on. Yeah. Has a different way that this shows up. I mean, boy, Dr. Hermanowitz, there's got to be, there's dozens of symptoms. And um, so no two people have exactly the same way that this shows up in life. Right. That's, that's one of the challenges of uh, both making a diagnosis in the first place because yeah. it can show up in different forms. As Sarah mentions, not everybody has tremor with Parkinson's disease, so it can be tricky, including for people who uh, focus on this. It's not a simple diagnosis to be confident of in all cases. Uh, and, and, of course, the, how it may change over time and the kind of symptoms that people develop also can vary uh, greatly from one person to another. Uh, as with the hallucination example, it's pretty common, and there's some studies indicate that 50% or more people with Parkinson's may have that at some point, but, you know, 50% or so don't, and, right. and some people may have other issues like uh, very troubling um, GI symptoms or, or problems with their bladder or sleep issues that other people don't uh, go through. So it, it, it does have a, a wide variety of its presentations and how it uh, and be troubling to people. I um, I had a, a client who uh, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, but uh, you know when I think about it, she also had um, in- intestinal problems. She had constipation all the time. Uh, And she had some cognitive changes. And I remember um, her caregiver saying to me at one time, she said, she just, she said she looked at me and it was kind of like, uh, she was just staring, but she wasn't there. And she said to me, you're the devil, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but she was going to all kinds of different doctors, you know, uh, 
And I, I, I don't believe they were kind of connecting some of those symptoms to be part of the Parkinson's disorder. Yeah, I think it wasn't so much recognized some years past, but it, I think increasingly, uh, again, thanks to educational efforts like Sarah's organization, right. people understand this is not something unusual necessarily with Parkinson's disease. This is something that can occur. And as Sarah mentioned, <laughs> to this day, unfortunately, people, uh, the person who has Parkinson's disease, their care partner, they may not bring it up when they come to see their uh, provider, physician, nurse practitioner, et cetera. Um, and unfortunately, the physician or their provider may not ask about it. I, I think that behavior is changing. I, I, I certainly hope it, that it is. Because if it's not recognized, it can be troubling. Years past, I had patients who called the police. And even not that long ago, I've had somebody I just saw recently, had uh, a few years ago, had called the police when his wife was, was gone for a while thinking that somebody was trying to break in and harm them. So it, it, you know, if it's unrecognized and not dealt with, these kinds of symptoms can be very troubling. Yeah. I mean, well, we reach millions um, in 169 countries and, and uh-huh. physicians around the world. We want to make them aware as well as uh, caregivers, you know, um, and, and patients themselves. So, uh what's the best way and what kind of support can we give uh, people with Parkinson's and their families? Sarah, go ahead. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about one of the most important things is actually seeing a doctor who has expertise in this. Um, so movement disorder specialist, which is like what Dr. Hermanowitz is, is uh, that's a specific practice and it's actually a neurologist with advanced training in movement disorders. So it's, it's a specialist of a specialist. Right. Um, and, you know, that's something that people don't even know is out there. Right. And we have, um, you know, we're not just in the U.S. We have uh, 169 countries. So that might be. Uh, and there's movement disorder physicians all over the world. And, you know, actually on our website, we have a link directly okay. to the Movement Disorder Society. OK, perfect. Which has an up to date listing of all of the movement disorder specialists um, across the world to address that. Um, and there's something interesting about this disease, and I don't know if it's the chronicity or the fact that people tend when they're diagnosed. I'm not sure what the reason is, Yeah. but we find people who will not always seek out the important, even if it's once a year, uh, we tell people you're not cheating on your doctor to go see a specialist. Right, yeah. I, you find people, people do fear that. <laughs> people, they or, just, yeah, I don't know what it yeah. is. Um, yeah. And I think, too, um, sometimes we don't think about, uh, you know, I'm curious what you think about this, Dr. Hermano, is that sometimes um, adult children or care partners might see something that the person with Parkinson's may or may not see just because of perhaps where they're at in their disease process. Um, but you can always share that information with a doctor, even if they can't reply back to you. They at least have that information from you. Information can always go the one way, Correct. Correct, and 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 one as you bring that up, sir. One one example of that, I almost hate to mention it, but it's an important one: is driving. Um, Yeah. People with Parkinson's disease, it's been studied and published in medical journals, do have an increased risk of having an accident. And I have uh, very very few people in my practice, people who are coping with Parkinson's disease, who themselves have said, you know, I I recognize my driving is not what it should be. I'm just going to stop. 
family members may recognize that and often do, but, but have some reluctance about intervening in something that's regarded as so important in terms of one's independence and yeah. identity. But it is something, that's the kind of information it's, it's another topic that's that's not pleasant to touch uh, yeah. on, but I do uh, in a, on a regular basis in my practice because the stakes are just so high. I mean, even in short trips close to home, people could get into something serious that could have lasting repercussions. So it's 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 good to have. I, I'm always disappointed if, so, if one of my patients uh, shows up without anybody with him, without Aww. a spouse or a family member that can help. Share, you know, the visit and, yeah. and, uh, and understand what's being the information that's being exchanged and, and, and also provide an outside, uh, you know, somebody providing additional information about how things are going. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, want to go, I want to go back to one thing that, that Sarah had touched on or that was brought up about in terms of how does one cope with these things? I mean, one is to see a movement sort of specialist, which they're hard to find in some parts of the, of the world and even some parts of California, Southern California. It's not easy to have access. Uh, d- despite the density of physicians here. But I think another way that, that people learn how to deal with this diagnosis is, is, is attending educational programs. I've gone to several that Sarah's organization has uh, sponsored, and there, there's always a good turnout. And these are opportunities for people to exchange information to right. learn not just from who is ever speaking, but also from one another. Uh, and how, you know, coping methods, or do you, do you do, do you, have you experienced this, or has this happened to you? And and also learning about uh, developments in the field is right. going to these programs and sharing information among other people. We, I, I was involved with a program in of all places Iceland, which is my wife's home country. Wow! Uh, and the turnout was immense. I mean, it was there was such a, an eagerness for knowledge in that relatively small country, but it it, it came over very well. Uh, and I'm hoping that that's continuing uh, in in Iceland. Uh, with the, with the specialists who are there, uh, the Icelandic physicians themselves. Well, the work you, you're both doing, uh, you know, and, and bringing this to light, bringing uh, all this information, the studies. Um, and again, Sarah, your website, www.pmdalliance.org. Thank you so much for listening. Parents are hard to raise family. I love getting your emails and questions, so please keep sending them. You can reach me at Diane at ParentsAreHardToRaise.org or just click the green button on our homepage. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a CounterThink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Our New York producer is Joshua Green. Our broadcast engineer is Well Gambino. And from our London studios, the melodic voice of our announcer, Miss Dolly D. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, may you forget everything you don't want to remember. And remember everything you don't want to forget. See you again next week.